I just need to go out there and pitch, man. What, what do you think has led to the drop in velocity for you? I don't worry about the velocity right now. How do you feel physically, Carlos? I feel really good. Thank you for that question. I feel really good right now. I think the more important right now is just getting, give it the team opportunity to win some game. That's that's all about I care right now. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, April the 9th, 2023. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at MikeSilvaMedia. And you can show an Apple podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. And you can check me out on Instagram, TalkingMetsNoG. And I want to welcome in the good folks from the Fan Sided Podcasting Network, as well as RisingApple.com. And welcome to a new sponsor, Rival Fantasy. You'll hear a little bit about them throughout the show during the commercial break. Rival Fantasy, a great business partner to the Talking Mets podcast. Well, happy Passover, happy Easter. Hope you guys have a great holiday weekend. Spring is here. Baseball is here. We're now officially 10 games into the 2023 baseball season. And before I get to the irrational panic and irrational commentary that has surrounded the New York Mets over the last week, want to just give you a heads up. We're going to have a great guest. I had a chance to catch up with earlier today. First time on the show, author, baseball historian, Lee Lowenfish. You may know Lee, some of his prior works. Had a great book about Branch Rickey, Baseball's Ferocious Gentleman, The Imperfect Diamond, which was about the story of baseball's reserve clause, and then going way back to the 1980s, The Art of Pitching with Tom Seaver. So uh, Lee Lowenfish uh, will be joining me uh, in just a little bit, has a new book out about a topic that has been at the forefront of the baseball conversation, and that is uh, scouting. His new book is uh, Baseball's Endangered Species. Inside the Craft of Scouting by Those Who Lived It, Lee Lowenfish. And uh, what better guest to have on a week where the fans, the media are clamoring for the Mets to bring up Francisco Alvarez, are clamoring for the Mets to bring up Brett Beatty, are clamoring for the Mets to bring up maybe Ronnie Mauricio, are clamoring for the Mets to bring up Mark Vientos. Forget about all these veterans with resumes. Forget about the plan that Billy Epler and Buck Schulwater put together. Forget about the fact that it's a 162-game season. We are 10 games into the season, not even a sliver into the season. We're going to all of a sudden change uh, all the decks here on the uh, on the uh, the Titanic, I guess. That's what some people feel this is. And, uh, you know, if it was a fantasy baseball situation, I could see. Now, here's where you come to this show, and I give you... The good, the bad, and the ugly. I always do that to you. And it's hard to really get too crazy here 10 games of the season. Overall, I'll tell you this. Unlike last year where the Mets came charging out of the gate and you felt really good the first 7 to 10 days and the first month or so into the season, 
You haven't felt really great about them in spring training. Part of that is the Diaz injury, the Quintana injury. They're all over the, the globe there with a bunch of Mets playing in the World Baseball Classic. So you didn't get a feel of this team. You know, guys nursing back injuries. Nimmo didn't play a hell of a lot in spring training. You didn't see some guys pitch a hell of a lot in spring training, except for guys like Peterson and McGill, guys that were trying to, uh, you know, build themselves up and compete for a roster spot. Then the Verlander injury news comes into play. Looks like it's not serious. I don't expect to see him until May 1st or so, but not that bad. And what I told you last week, especially after the opening series against Miami, where things were pretty much what you would expect from the 2023 Mets because they were like the 2022 Mets, I said, look, I think this early getting-to-know-you phase is going to be rocky. And I keep seeing, and yes, the Mets are not, you know, gangbusters of the offense. They're averaging about a little over four runs a game, which is below league average here 10 days into the season. But when I start looking at the offense and I start seeing how people are freaking out about the fact that Alvarez started today instead of yesterday, uh, freaking out about the fact that Escobar is two for 26, they're, they're not, not happy with Vogelback, they don't like Fam. Lindor is not hitting enough, McNeil didn't get into it, yeah, I could go on, Cano is in a slump, and you see all that, all you keep hearing is the Mets need to go and they have all these kids in the minor leagues, they got to bring them up, and I'm saying to myself, if the 2023 Mets, and very early I think I can make this statement, I don't think I need to wait the whole getting to know you phase and the whole uh, you know, first 60 games where this is almost like a buildup to real, the real meat and potatoes of the season comes into play. Uh, if the 2023 Mets don't win or underachieve or don't even come close to making the playoffs or disappoint us in some way, shape, or form, I firmly believe it's going to be because of the starting pitching. And I think that's taking shape very early on. If there is one area that I have very little concerns about, now the outfield's a different situation. I worry a lot about health in the outfield. But when it comes to the infield, when it comes to if Escobar is done, you have Brett Beatty. If the DH spot doesn't work out, you have Vientos, you have Mauricio that could probably sub in and maybe do just as bad as some of the guys that have played badly early on in the season. Um, if the catching situation needs to be addressed like it, it, it had to be with Navarez going out, hey, you got your top prospect there in Alvarez who got an RBI single today, didn't produce in a big spot or later in the ballgame and had some trouble behind the plate, which, by the way, is one of the reasons why I'm not ready to hand over his, uh, you know, the spot to him. You know, Todd Zeal talked about it in the postgame, you know, how he's setting up may have come into play. There's a lot of nuance to the catching spot that, quite honestly, I don't care how well you hit. Unless you're Mike Piazza, you need to do those things or else you're a DH, in my opinion. But despite all that, if this team underachieves very clearly into the season, the starting pitching has been a problem. Yeah, the reliever numbers aren't great. They had a couple of stinkers, too. Rayleigh had a bad outing this week. You saw a couple of their guys, you know, Santana get hit up a little bit the other day. But when you look at the bullpen, Adovino has been Adovino. Robertson has done the best interpretation early on of Diaz. I'm bullish on Curtis. You know, Rayleigh seems to be a guy that could get left-handers out. And they have some live arms there in the bullpen that you feel good about them. You know, Nagosik playing the Trevor Williams role today. Uh, there's a lot of reasons not to be uh, upset about the bullpen. You know, I'm not always a big Drew Smith fan, live arm. Feel that he could still get some big outs maybe in the earlier parts of the game, the 6th, 7th inning. 
The starting pitching is where this season right now, and this is where I really think I'm going to be looking at over the next you know couple of weeks because if you thought thought the getting to know you phase was something that hey we could just ease ourselves into the uh, the season, well let me tell you something. The Mets schedule is about to get pretty thorny, very quickly, very early. Uh, yeah, they play the Marlins two out of the three first series. They went to Milwaukee, tough place to play. But they're playing the Padres, who, as we come to you on this Sunday night, are blowing the Braves out. Seth Lugo looks like he's going to go to 2-0 as a starting pitcher. So the Padres are coming to town. This is the team that eliminated them from the uh, the wild card. This is a team that spent just like the Mets throughout the offseason. This is the team that has designs on being the new Dodgers. They want to dethrone the Dodgers. They want to be the cream of the crop in the National League with the spending and bringing in Soto and bringing in Bogarts. And they have Grisham at the top of the lineup that, you know, hit like Babe Ruth in that wild card series. Um, and, you know, Tatish Jr. is going to be coming back. And, and, you know, so on and so forth. So you have a team that has designs on being elite. So you get thrown right into the deep end. Scherzer versus Darvish tomorrow night. So this isn't going to get any easier. And then they get a day off. And, oh, by the way, the first real test of the season comes into play, which is a West Coast trip. A West Coast trip that takes them to three games in Oakland, three games in the L.A. against the Dodgers, and a four-game set against the Giants in San Francisco. So you're looking at a, a, a 10-game road trip that brings you to the end of April, and then you get a little bit of blow when you come back to City Field and you play the Nats. But then right after that, it's a big series against the Braves, big weekend series against the Braves. So there is no period where the Mets could ease into this getting-to-know-you phase and and not be tested early. Now, you're not going to lose this division right now, but I'll tell you what. Currently, the Mets pitching staff, the starting pitching, has an ERA of 4.44, and you've gotten a couple of... Look, Senga looked great again. Put egg on my face, looked every bit of what you would expect from a Chris Bassett, and maybe more in his first two starts. After that bad first inning, there's not much you could complain about. Maybe the third time around the order, he gets a little tired, but Senga has looked really good. Let me see him against a good offensive team, and it looks like we'll get that opportunity over the next couple of weeks as they hit the West Coast, as they hit some of these better teams. Uh, yes, Scherzer had a bad outing against Milwaukee. I'm not ready to say he's Tom Glavin 2008 and write him off, uh, 2007 and write him off, but uh, you know, definitely Scherzer's been one good, one bad outing. McGill had a really good outing over the weekend against the Marlins. Let's see that, you know, him stay healthy and let's see him sustain that. But then you look at the, uh, David Peterson, again, inconsistent, not getting in, out of the fifth inning. A- and look, today, and you heard his comments coming into the broadcast, you know, one of the guys that, with Quintana out, with Verlander being out for about a month, one of the guys that you really needed, at the very least, to be who he was last year, which is maybe give you some quality innings against sub-500 teams, probably going to pitch a little bit better at home and on the road. Was I surprised that in Milwaukee opening day, uh, a good offensive team on the road that Carlos Carrasco got hit? No, because that's what happened last year all the time. So I wasn't surprised. But what really sends up the warning flag is here we are, City Field, bad offensive team, team that strikes out a lot. And not only was he down quick and early, it really was reminiscent of what you saw when he came off the injured list in 2021. And every first inning, he seemed to get down 2 or 3 nothing. But he was non-competitive against the lineup that the prior five games that they played against the Mets, 
or six games, how many games they played against the Mets, six games against the Mets, really wasn't able to score very much, and not only not score much, struggled to score in bunches, and they did both of those things today. And look, they even, as, as, as much of a good day as the Marlins had, you know, the Mets were a couple big hits away from making that interesting ball game. So when you start to complain here as a fan base and you go on talk radio, and talk radio will probably spend all their time yelling about how, well, the base is loaded, Escobar hit that ball and grounded out. If Beatty was in the lineup, you know, maybe that's a grand slam. That's the wrong conversation because you have plenty of time to put those guys in the lineup. And you know what? If things continue the way they are for Escobar and the Mets need a jolt on offense, Beatty's going to be here if he's healthy. And I don't think Daniel Vogelback or Tommy Pham or, or anybody else is going to get in the way of either a Mauricio who's hitting the hell out of the ball down at Syracuse or Vientos getting a chance to be their right-handed complement against the, as a DH, or in some way, shape, or form, if Vogelback stinks, maybe all of a sudden you're looking up midseason and Mauricio and Vientos are your DHs, and they're playing the platoon game. Maybe. Who knows? There is plenty of time for that. But you know where the Mets are really in trouble? That, assuming Verlander comes back, the fact of the matter is, if Scherzer and Verlander and now Senga are not those guys that you think they're going to be. They're not the two Hall of Famers and the guy with upside. That number four and five in the rotation could be really problematic as time goes on because Peterson hasn't looked great. We don't know anything about the health of of McGill over the long haul. And Carlos Carrasco right now looks every bit a really bad fifth start. I mean, would you be would you be any worse for wear at this point if Dil- T- Dylan Bundy was your starter. I mean, here's a guy that's coming with an ERA about five for his career. You know, failed top prospect. And not, nobody was excited about that minor league signing. At some point, I mean, I, I expect to see him, whether it be because of depth or because they're, you know, not really happy with what they got. So the importance of a Verlander coming back, but not only the importance of a Verlander, those first three guys, you know, Senga, check marks so far, so good. Verlander, uh, Verlander, we don't know. Get healthy. All signs indicate that he'll be back soon. I, I expect him to be out till May first. From what I understand, from what I've heard, from what I'm hearing, Verlander saying, I think he's out a month. I think that's where a cautious approach to easing him into the season comes. And then the real thing is, I don't know if it's pitch clock. Was he, you know, tipping his pitches off? You know, obviously it was location. If you watch the game on Monday against Milwaukee. But if for some reason Max Scherzer has struck midnight and turned into a pumpkin, then all bets are off. This is a really big, problematic, bad situation altogether. We're not going to go that route. But right now, the Mets starting pitching is a problem. And it's not like you could go down in the minor leagues and get much better. Is Joey Lucchese much better? I don't know. Jose Buto had a nice outing in AAA. You know, maybe at some point he could come in and give some quality innings. But you're putting a lot of faith right now in the development of McGill and development of Peterson. And I'll tell you what, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know how the Mets look at this and how Buck looks at this, and we all know Buck is going to give veterans and guys with long resumes a very, very, very long leash. And, you know, I said it for Escobar. You know, I said it for Ruff, but look, you know, maybe it was more injury. They pulled the plug on Ruff pretty quick. Uh, And I'll say for Carrasco, I don't think all of a sudden after two or three bad starts, they're going to pull the plug on him. But I will tell you, if Buto continues to pitch well at AAA, or Lucchese does, you know, Verlander coming back, let's say Verlander's back May 1st, and McGill is pitching well, and somehow Peterson has found himself, 
and Carrasco is still barely getting out of the fourth or fifth inning and getting lit up on a daily basis. Well, you have a conversation about, well, what are you going to do with this guy? And I'm, not say- I'm not saying release him. Not going to do that. And I don't know if he's equipped to be the long guy a la Trevor Williams. Seems like Nagosek is really building himself into that role. But you are not in a position, you know, with, with Carrasco to mess around here. Uh, and, and in a lot of ways, while you complain about Escobar, knowing that you have the answer potentially at AAA, the real worry should be the pitching. Because I'm not sure you have those kind of answers. I still have major questions about McGill. I have major questions about Peterson. I have major questions about Carrasco. I don't know what the heck you're going to get out of a Buto or uh, a Luke Casey if you put them in. And if the starting pitching is not to the level where it was last year, with the type of offense that's not a bully offense, that is an offense that can score four to five runs, but relies on really good defense, solid bullpen, and good starting pitching, you take the starting pitching equation out, that throws this dynamic completely off. All of a sudden, you have yourself a problem. And a team that you thought could win 95 games and compete for a division and potentially be a team that can make it out of the National League into the World Series may be a much different type of team that you're not even sure if they're uh, any more than slightly above mediocre. And if you remember last year, going into the season, one of the things I thought about this Mets team, because they were older, because I wasn't sure about the pitching, because I wasn't sure about the health, I kind of had them pegged at 90, 91, 92 wins. And at that point, even though the Braves had won a championship the prior year, I thought that was enough to keep them in the mix of the National League East because that was what was good enough the year before. You know, The Braves, I don't even think, won 90 games in 2021, the year they won the championship. They meandered through a lot, a lot of the summer. Braves may have flaws now, and they may have injuries of their own, but they're a better team, and they're a team that, you know, with the kind of offense they have, that it's going to beat up on bad teams very easily, even with their problems, could win 95-plus games. I'm not sure the Mets can, and that's why I pegged them last year as not a 100-win team, not at a 95-plus win team, at a 90-91 win team. Now, that may still be good enough to make the playoffs, and that's what this is all about, but the more you you eat away at that starting pitching performance, the more that the starting pitching comes up as a question mark, the more that I'm going to be bearish on the Mets, not bullish. Notice I haven't said anything about the kids because the kids and when they play is not going to be the determining factor of the Mets' 2023 success. Whether Alvarez started today, yesterday, a week from now, two weeks from now, you're not going to lose incrementally a lot of games. The Mets are going to score enough runs. It's whether or not they could score consistently or maybe even become that team that could put up a 7 or 8 spot instead of winning 5-1, blow a team out, exactly what we talked about a week ago. You know, All these kids down the minor leagues, they're going to be there in two weeks. Those are easy fixes. Sure, there's some roster machinations that may have to happen, and you may need to make a difficult decision on a Daniel Vogelback or a Tommy Pham or when Navarez comes back in a couple of months, you know, what do you do if Alvarez is hitting the heck out of the ball? Do you, you know, do you give up on a Tomas, Tomas Nito? You know, what do you do? You know, there's some clumsiness to the Mets roster because of the lack of versatility of a Vogelback. You know, the fact that you really need a backup outfielder and fam, you know, unless you want to just keep LaCastro around. So there's a lot of things that come into play that's not for today's conversation. But if your conversation today is you're worried about when Beatty's getting called up, uh, why Alvarez didn't start with Senga 
on the mound on Saturday. You know, want to talk about a Tower of Babel there, a guy who speaks Japanese and no English, a guy who speaks Spanish and no English, who can't speak with each other, and Jeremy Hefner, who can't speak to either one of them. I mean, come on. Use your noodle. Use your head there. You know, and I also think a guy who still needs a lot of work behind the plate. I mean, Todd Zeal said as much on the post game. There's a guy that came up as a catcher who would know. Uh, you know, you're really not in a position with this kind of staff and where you are to have developmental games at a critical position behind the plate. You're just not. I mean, really, he's going to have to earn that playing time, and it's going to be a situation, and you may not like to hear it. He's not going to earn it with his bat. He's going to earn it with his glove. I don't think the offense is in such dire straits that they have to have that bat unless it's Piazza. And so far, I haven't seen Mike Piazza. Maybe in the minor leagues, he's been that guy. He has not been that guy so far in the big leagues. Albeit, he doesn't even have 50 plate appearances in the big leagues. But that's just the reality of the situation. So before you get all crazy and you expect me to come on here and talk about, hey, you know, Escobar, this and that, it's not about the kids coming up. It's not about the offense. It's about the starting pitching. And I'm really curious to see how this pitching performs against an elite team like the Padres, a team that's you know smoking the Braves as we speak, a team that um, is a true test for the Mets. And then they go on the West Coast, and yeah, Oakland's not a good team. Maybe there's a little bit of a breather playing in that mausoleum. But you know how those games are always trap games. You saw that last year when they lost the Saturday afternoon game with DeGrom on the mound. Then you go into L.A., tough place to play. And then you go to San Francisco, tough place to play too. You know, Giants might have been a 500 team last year, but a team that won 100 games a couple of years ago in San Francisco has always been a tough place for the Mets to play. So that's really where we're at. Ten days into the season, first full week, starting pitching is the main concern, and that's what I'm going to be looking at. And if these guys don't straighten up, if you're looking at a staff that's going to pitch to an ERA of about four and a half and not get out of the fourth or fifth inning, major, major problems. And it doesn't matter what Beatty hits, what Escobar hits, what Alvarez hits, whoever hits. I don't care if Pete Alonso hits 90 home runs this year. They ain't going anywhere. I can promise you that. And I can write that down in stone like Moses in the tablets. We'll use a religious re- reference here on Easter. The Mets need their starting pitching. They need Scherzer to be Scherzer. They need Verlander to be healthy. Like what I see about Senga, let me see him against a good team. But if Carrasco, McGill, and Peterson stink up the joint... And so far, I've seen mixed results there. McGill being the best out of all of them, big problems. You can't have two, two impotent starting pitching days out of five every turn in the rotation. There's not enough offense here to overcome with that. You're going to burn the crap out of your bullpen even worse. And championship teams don't have two holes in the rotation like that. Not to mention the fact championship teams don't have the kind of lack of certainty with starting pitching depth that the Mets have right now. Got to start. One of the biggest themes this year, and we won't go, I'm not going to go belabor this because we got to get to Lee Lowe and Fish and we got to take a break, is the Mets need to get their development of competent, even if it's replacement level, replacement level league average players that could come in and sub in and give them a couple of weeks, whether it be an outfielder coming up from the minor leagues um, a starting pitcher, a bullpen arm. They are too reliant on, and it shows by the fact that they had to sign a veteran like Dylan Bundy going out there and buying expensive veterans. And you could do that in, a, in, in on your 25, 26-man roster. I should 26-man roster. But no veteran is going to sit in the minor leagues all year waiting to get the call, even if you pay him a ton of money. 
They want to be on a big league roster. Dylan Bundy doesn't get the call. He's probably out of here June 1st. I'm sure he's got an opt-out. That's what you can't – money can't buy you depth in the short term. In the long term, you spend money on the draft and resources and all those other things, international signees, it can buy you depth. But the Mets aren't there yet. So, all right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, Lilo and Fish, let's get into scouts. Are scouts an endangered species? Are scouts still important? Lilo and Fish wrote a book about this. Great time to talk about it with the Mets and young prospects and – the development of their young prospects, whether they should be in the big leagues, whether they should be in the minor leagues, should they be riding the pines and learning at the big league level? We'll talk about that and more right after this. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. We love talking about the next generation of Mets players on the Talking Mets podcast. One that excites all of us is top prospect Francisco Alvarez. Keith Rad, broadcaster for the Brooklyn Cyclones, shared his experience covering the future Mets catcher and the special moment that should excite us all. It's pretty dumb crazy the type of attention this kid gets when he's just taking swings at 5 o'clock in the afternoon every single day. We had our biggest wow moment of the year, like you said, how deep our ballpark is. But our batter's eye is, again, 412 feet uh, away, and he hit it to the right of the batter's eye, like dead center. I've, I've never seen that before. I mean, we've had uh, rehabbers, you know, Robbie Cano, Todd Frazier recently uh, with us. And they'll even in BP, these guys have a tough time hitting it out. And Alvarez hit one just to the right of the batter's eye. So far, a shot I'll, I'll never forget. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. We're back and joining me, first time to the show, really excited to have him, author, baseball historian, author of a number of books, which if you haven't read them, you should. Lee Lowenfish, you could check him out at LeeLowenfish.com, The Art of Pitching, Tom Seaver, pretty relevant to a Mets fan audience, The Imperfect Diamond, about baseball's labor wars, and a book about Branch Rickey that came out, uh, Baseball's Ferocious Gentleman. And now we're talking about a topic that, quite honestly, is talked about a lot, but in a negative fashion. And I don't think a lot of people understand it. Baseball's endangered species. 
inside the craft of scouting of those who lived it. Lee, welcome to the program. And you are a perfect guest for the Talking Mets podcast. I'll tell you why. You grew up in New York. You grew up in a time when it was the Dodgers, the Yankees, and the Giants. I know no Mets, but that is a New York baseball lineage in your blood. So welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Well, you really nailed that, uh, Mike. It's really nice to be with you because I grew up a block south of Central Park, uh, which, as I always say, is not Central Park South. But I went to public schools, and I'm living now on the Upper West Side near where I went to junior high school, Joan of Arc. It's now called something else. And I uh, I was a New York Giant fan. I picked that up from my father. And my father was a dermatologist and a huge baseball fan. He he was a fan of the Giants because when he was a little boy, the Giants were the big deal. The, Yan- the Yankees hadn't uh, come in, really, or they hadn't been good until they started playing the Giants in those World Series, the early 20s. My father also had baseball umpires as patients. And so Bill Stewart, who I never met, but who, uh, well, the Stewart name was big, not only in baseball, but hockey. He was a hockey coach, referee. Every student, every Stewart you see in NHL today, virtually everyone is connected to the Bill Stewart. And the other one I did know, Bay Pinelli. Bay Pinelli was the uh, best known for his last game behind home plate, the Don Larson's perfect game. Uh, and and so, you know, baseball was always part of the family. I remember he came to dinner once and my parents said, you know, this is his day off. Don't ask him about baseball. <laughs> it's I like did. a busman's holiday. It's a busman's holiday, they call it, right? Of course I did. And so he, <laughs> he was wild about the Johnny Unitas who had emerged. And in a way, it's a kind of good segue because uh but Unitas was an undrafted guy who the Steelers let go. And as I got on uh, to be a baseball historian writer, in the 80s, uh, I'm going to a high school game on the west side of uh, Manhattan. And I'm there are a lot of baseball scouts there. In fact, it may have been a John Jay College game. It was Clinton Park. And so I meet this scout uh, named Billy Blitzer. And I said, well, are you related to Ida Blitzer, who was a patient of my father? And he says, yeah, it's in my grandmother. Are you related to Dr. Lomerfish? And I said, that's my father. And so that's how wow. my interest in scouts grew. He introduced me to Herb Stein, who was his mentor, one of his mentors. Herb Stein was a senator scout, had been a Washington, original Washington senator's infielder. World War II came. He served in Europe, and that really blew his chance to move up the ladder. But he he stayed in the minors, became a minor league manager, and then a scout. And he signed Rod Carew from from his neighborhood. Rod Rod Carew went to uh, uh, George Washington High School, as did Herb Stein, you know, many years before. Herb also signed uh, later uh, Frank Viola and Gene Larkin, who I'm a Columbia guy, and so Gene Larkin's famous for the World Series World winning Series hit. game winning hit, right? With twins and signed by Herb Stein. And so between Billy and Herb, the, the circle began to widen. And more and more I uh I wanted to tell their stories because scouts by by training and by disposition, they travel a lot. Then uh the the I've I've heard scouts tell me their their greatest achievement is to have a family because they miss so many events 
in the kids growing up, but it gets in their blood. And so as I was doing the Branch Rickey book, uh, I, I knew that his scouts were such a, made such a difference and he himself loved to scout. And so that's how this, uh, how this developed. And uh, I developed also because of my first teaching jobs out of Wisconsin were in Baltimore. I became an Oriole fan and their scouting and player development was top shelf from beginning in 1960 when they made a run at the Yankees through their last and still their last World Series championship in 83. So this all came together. And uh, as I did the research, when I was meeting a lot of the scouts early this century, they were they raved about Jeter and A-Rod just because the way they approached the game. And so while I've never rooted for the Yankees, as I did this book, I understood why that tradition of Yankee scouting that Steinbrenner disrupted, but then he uh, his suspension enabled that last dynasty of the Yankees of the late uh, uh, 20th century to, to, to flourish because the scouts brought them Bernie and Mendoza and Mariano and Posada. In fact, there's a very important guy with the Rays uh, uh, who is uh, used to be with the Yankees and um, the name, name will come to me. Uh, he pitched against Dave Winfield in the college world series for Penn state. And he told me that when he saw Posada Rivera and uh, Bernie and Mendoza play in low a, he said, those are four major leaguers. And he was, he was proven. He was proven that that was proven correctly. And so uh, another part of my book, because I'm a New Yorker is this story of how red Murph found Nolan Ryan when he was 140 pounds and his high school coach didn't think he was the best pitcher on his team. And he also found Coastman before the draft because, because he knew that Coastman had dropped out of junior college because he couldn't get along with his coach in Minnesota. But he told him, you, you lose some weight. You, you have the ability to go up, go up. And he did. And so that's what's drawn me to this book, that scouting is a science, an imperfect science, and, uh, and it's really a craft. That's what we use in the subtitle. And it just pains me to see so many of them as a result of the money ball, the book, and then the movie cost dozens, hundreds of scouts their jobs. And I hope in some way that, that this book can, can bring back to life those who gave their, 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 their guts to the game and really, really produced and, and helped develop so many great players. Absolutely. Lee Lowenfish, author here, a great book here, Baseball's Endangered Species, talking about scouting. And it's true because even the modern day fan, look, you got a couple of uh, big prospects here in New York, Francisco Alvarez, who'll be starting later today. Anthony Volpe comes with the Yankees out of spring training. And we look at them as finished products uh, a lot of times as fans, even the media. And oh, there they are. It was almost like they came from the prospect trade. And not only there is so much in finding these players who are not just, there's not a list. Like I, I know I have a friend who's a scout and for a national league team, there's not a list. They don't get a list like, Hey, you know, here's the headhunting firm. These are the guys you got to go scout. 
you know, there are hotbeds of talent. There are places where you find these guys. The road is so unglamorous. The lifestyle, uh, whether you like Trouble with the Curve or not, the old Clint Eastwood movie, um, you know, living out of these dumpy motels and eating bad food and racking up miles and, and being in towns that, quite honestly, are, you know, the heart of America, but not places necessarily you'd want to spend more than a night in. That's how you find Francisco Alvarez. That's how you find Anthony Volpe. Uh, no, obviously, there's the international part as well. And I think people forget there's not a prospect tree. It's not like I have a first round pick and, okay, here's the guys. It's, you know, take it or leave it. Uh, in a way, it's a lot different than the NFL and the NBA, which procure the talent through the college ranks um, or the high school ranks now in the NBA, if you want to call it that. It's so much more nuanced than that. Exactly. And that's what my big gripe with the uh, with the analytic craze is they don't have room for nuance. You know, they think they actually think they can scout a player the way we're talking now, you know, would, you know, plug in certain uh, arm angle and, uh, and, uh, and video uh, uh, exit velocity. Right. The way you learn the game is by losing, you know, there was a, a Joe, Joe Torrey had that great quote when he came back to manage, he had been broadcasting for the angels and he hadn't been very successful in Atlanta, St. Louis. And, you know, the headlines were clueless Joe. And but Joe said he missed the winning and he missed the losing. And that's always been a very profound because you Clavin told me, Tom Clavin, we have the story in the book of how scout Tony DeMacio, uh, the first person he was key in the signing in his Atlanta career was Tom Glavin. His last one was was Chipper Jones before he moved to the Orioles. And uh he he uh, he told me that Glavin, when they interviewed him, he did all the talking. His father was there. They knew his father, who had been a football player, and he knew he didn't want Tom to play football. But Tom was a great hockey player, and he had been drafted by the NHL. So the, the issue was, can you talk him out of the NHL and also out of the uh, – uh, uh, a scholarship to, to play hockey at UMass Lowell. And they just knew that he wanted to play baseball by the questions uh, he was asking as when he was unsigned. And by contrast, they remember when they interviewed Matt Harvey. And when they interviewed Matt Harvey, who wound up going to North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill, his father did all the talking. Mm. And so that you had the sense that the makeup was, was not going to be great, you know. And then when Matt Harvey comes up and contributes to the Mets that that got to the World Series and and lost to the uh, to the Royals, but he flamed out. I mean, he his his social life got a hold of him, and I call him the anti Jeter because he was he was getting into the to the press all the time for the wrong reasons, you know. Right. So makeup is really the sixth tool. I mean, Branch Rickey probably was the one who coined the five, you know, hit hit with power, run, throw, and field. But makeup is the key. Makeup is how do you handle losing and how, and how do you accept the fact that there are days when they're not your days, you know, that, that luck is against you or a, a good pitch gets hit by a better hitter. I mean, Seaver talked about that a lot. Right. And, and the scouts are, are so 
uh, vital to this, and I call them ears and eyes scouts. And there's an old adage in the scouting world that God gave you two ears and two eyes and one mouth. One mouth, right. Listen and, and, and hear. It's interesting that you talk about analytics, and I'm not anti-analytics, but I think that recently, uh, and I can't remember if it was the owner of the Colorado Rockies or the, I can't remember which team, said analytics is is a road to nowhere. And maybe a lot of the evolvement of analytics post-Moneyball, I mean, baseball is not rocket science. I know we like to think it is. It's not rocket science, and we have discovered a good number of things that could be helpful. However, but I remember uh, former Met Mackie Sasser, he was a college coach. He was on another show saying, you know, you could talk about spin rate on a curveball, but back in my day, I could see that behind the plate. I could see a good spin rate. Now you're going into these labs and you're looking at spin rates and they are certainly in the Yankees and the Tampa Bay Rays have been great at that. Finding guys, Clay Holmes, guys on the scrap heap, not really a good pitcher. They see something with one of his pitches that is uh, uh, from spin rate and, and velocity, and then they all of a sudden they tweak it. But a lot of that tweaking is done in the bullpen, the, 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 the process versus the outcome. So I think that this idea that we're turning, and you talked about winning and losing minor leagues into labs, winning doesn't matter. Minor league time doesn't matter. You know, fans getting crazy because the Mets are sending down some of their top prospects. And I'm like, guys, you know, 60 days at the beginning of the season for a Brett Beatty or, you know, Alvarez before the injury to Narvaez, not going to kill them. Not going to kill them. It's a 162-game season, and it's almost like we have this, you know, maybe it's because of social media and the video and everybody thinks they're a scout. There is so much more that you and I and even the guys in the booth are not seeing that go into this and then they expect almost like an explanation from the general manager. Well, that's really not our business. That's their development. You know, not everything has to be public knowledge at this point. Well, you know, that's, you've raised one of the real issues uh, with everyone having access to internet and a video. uh, It's hard. It's hard to keep things private or, or, and the key to good management, you know, and a whole organization has to be on the same page is that you certainly tell your player what you're going to do, either in terms of farming him out or benching him before the word gets out on the Internet. So, I mean, it, it's really that, that the good organizations have to monitor that very, very quick, very uh, carefully. Uh, you know, I go back and forth. I mean, I love the game. And this is early April. We have a long season of ups and downs ahead. But so it's an exciting time of year. But what I'm concerned about in a long view is that last year was the first time that four teams more uh, won 100 games or more and four teams lost 100 games or more. That never happened. And it was almost six teams that lost 100 and more. And I, I, I really wonder if, if these other teams have, uh, have improved. And, and I mean, I, I don't think they have. So it's, uh, that, that's why if I were running a team, I, I would, since the draft's been cut to 20 rounds, and which a lot of scouts are opposed to, even though initially when it came in, in 1965, all the scouts were opposed to it. But if you're, if you're not going to get players on the contracts with the draft, well, then you should be beating the bushes, not just in Latin America 
and Venezuela and, and uh, Japan, but in this country, I think there were players out there, and the great scouts and who were some of them now are their their mentees say they would get inspired by the scouting director saying, "There's a Hall of Famer out there, find him." You know? Right, right, absolutely. Um, it's almost and it drives me crazy because baseball again, going back to the NBA going back to, you know, even professional football, you know, the first five, six picks, there are franchise changing players. You know what? You, you could understand to a certain degree. I'm not, I'm not for tanking. You're bad. You're bad. But when you overtly to the fans, what's going on in the NBA this weekend in Dallas, where they're basically sitting all their players in like a game out of the playoffs, unconscionable thinking about it. I grew up watching sports starting in the eighties, but in baseball, it's even more unconscionable because I don't care if you have the first five picks, how many, surefire number ones are there. Yeah, you had Chipper Jones, but Todd Van Poppel back then was a better prospect than Chipper Jones, right? Everybody wanted Todd Van Poppel. Look at who went where and look at who didn't. And in baseball, to me, the tanking and the lottery system, it just doesn't make sense because there's Mark Capel, right? Just go on and on. There is no way I can guarantee that there's a guy one, two, three, that for sure is going to be franchise changing. Maybe, but not for sure. Well, I have that story in the Paul Snyder chapter in Baseball's Endangered Species. Paul Snyder, who was a lifelong brave. Uh, he's one of the three scouts in my book that I call baseball monogamous because they've only been with one organization their whole life. And Snyder was scouting director when the issue came of Van Poppel and, uh, Tony DeMacio was the area scout that kept close tabs on Glavin, as I mentioned before. And they felt that, you know, once once Van Poppel signed on with Boris, uh, they 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 figured it was going to be a very hard negotiation. And they actually thought that there was a side deal already, a major league contract with Oakland, which pretty much happened. But but you talk about a consolation prize glavin was the uh, was had been so well recruited you know makeup as well as the talent as one of the scouts said about him he he knew what he didn't have and then he went and got it you know and, and that's true with those left-handed pitchers who sometimes take a while to develop but because their ball does i guess biologically moves more than right-handers they they're in great demand so Again, you need a bunch of scouts working closely with coaches uh, uh, because, as Paul Snyder also says in the book, it takes 10. You have to sign 10 pitchers to get one good one. Now, and and that's that's really uh, it shows how difficult it is to project these things. But what I pay homage in this book to those who knew how to project better than than others and who had the support from the uh from the ownership to do it and you know i wish the mets well but i mean i i frankly mike i'm glad i don't carry uh, carry any deep emotion with the mets because first you have the Wilpons who don't want to spend much or have to be forced into spending much right then you have the other extreme here with steve Cohn, who thinks you can buy it all and 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 you see that's to me in the long view i've given up i might i i call myself a romantic realist you know in my younger days 
I hoped for better owners who would let the scouts and the call coaches, you know, run the things. But, but now, you know, once you get the owners and the money and the ego and the coverage, it's the money, the money's a big thing. And it's actually playing into development of pitchers and or lack thereof. I'll tell you a story. There was a, a, he's on the DL for Tommy John surgery, uh, Bryce Montes de Oca, big arm, right-handed pitcher out of the bullpen. And this spring, there's a video on Twitter talking about this, the, you know, the, 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 the spin rate or the, the vertical movement of a pitch he threw in spring training. And I go to the video and the pitch was four feet outside. Yeah. And everyone's like, well, look at no, only three other people threw a pitch with that vertical movement. And I can, I'm, I'm probably saying it wrong. And I basically tweet out, well, it was a ball. It doesn't really matter. Like, this is not a carnival. And and then you got driveline, and I'm not here to bash driveline that the Mets brought in. And I, I re- read things about these guys coming in, and they're young guys. They're smart. You know, they're trying to get guys to, you know, go from 75 miles out to 90. And I see latch strains. I see rotator cuff strains, Tommy John. And, um, you know, again, I, I'm lucky enough where I know somebody who's a younger-ish type scout in the game. And even he's like, you know, this isn't caveman baseball. You know, it's the mechanics are good. And I see a lot of, and this goes back to even with not having scouts, I see a lot of guys getting called up. And I'm I'm a novice. I'm not a scout. I'm like, those mechanics look rough. And when people go, oh, how can you say they go, stand in your hallway, do those mechanics, just throwing natural, you know, your own velocity. Tell me how your arm feels after five of those. Now do that at high velocity. 125, 130, 140 times with warmups and then tell me what's going to happen. And, and, and that to me is the real key. You know, can you have scouts that can work on mechanics, the trained eye? And you actually talk in the book about four types of scouts. This is a hard job. You and I, I mean, maybe you, I don't know about me. I, I could see bad mechanics, but I can't develop anybody. I am a bit long time, a big baseball fan, but I don't have that skill. It's almost like, is it repetition? Are you born with it? That kind of thing. Well, well, well. A, you you li- you listen to elders to start with. Uh, B, you ask questions. I mean, that that's where baseball. Uh, I don't know if you saw the play "Take Me Out" uh, by Richard Greenberg, but there's a great. Uh, it got a lot of coverage because there's right. a nude scene in it, but. The, the lyricism about baseball in that play is beautiful. And that I, and I felt this way, you know, since before the play about the baseball field is more than, than just a field of dreams, which it is, but it's left center and right. You know, it's better than a parliament or a legislator because, you know, the, if you pull the ball sharply, the extremes, you know, you might get a foul pole home run or you might just waste an at-bat or you, you just hit a foul ball. Sure. Yeah. Sure. But if you hit the ball in the gaps and up the middle, that's the way to succeed, you know, and the great scouts would watch a ball player and watch a pitcher, the different angles, uh, watch a, a batter, uh, that, that whole business before about, can he straighten the ball off? Uh, 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 the, there's a great story about the, Casey and the bat is really about a one plane hitter and that you all, if you threw it down the middle, he could hit a home run, but you work the corners high and low, take a little off Poor Casey is going to strike out and that the scouts have to look for the, for that. And that's where projection comes in. Uh, how is he going to be when he's up the ladder and playing against other um, 
equally good good uh, uh, athletes and 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 unlike football where there's so much in the line you know uh, the the coaches would, would say in football like and even now in basketball although basketball is much smaller and much more open but we don't know what happened until we see the film in baseball it's there folks it's there you can't hide and if you watch when a batter strikes out or he's just missed his pitch it's there in the face sure and sure. And, and the good scouts I know some of the newer scouts, even the older scouts, don't like that phrase, the good face. But I like it because it, it shows it, sh- it shows composure or it shows determination or it, it, it shows pride. Uh, and, um, and I know some people can fake it. But uh, again, it's where the good uh, scout comes in. And, and it's what I, I, I try to explain in, uh, in, in, in this book in a, in a variety of ways. There's a lot of debate, you know, about winning at the minor league level. Look, I'm not saying you go out and you don't play people to win an international league championship. However, I think winning is part of development. And I, I don't know what scouts have told you. And I think winning at the minor league level, competing in a normalized environment. I know the Houston Astros we're you know, talking about doing a lab. I know minor league teams have been cut. I understand. Look, I'm not for that. I also understand there's a lot of economic issues right now that may prevent teams from you know, staying open, keeping the doors open and things like that. But I'm not for this becoming a backfield lab. And I'm curious if you have talked a lot about that because that's where it has been going. But I sense, especially with what we've seen with some of the new rules and the ways that players can go back to the way that baseball is played. Maybe we'll swing this thing back and balance it out. Baseball's a cop. Look, Lee, you know this better than I. You're a historian. Baseball's a copycat sport. They grab onto something, they drag it. Marlins win the World Series with speed at the top of the lineup. Everybody was all of a sudden trying to get speed at the top of the lineup. Red Sox went on base percentage. Now it's money ball. Uh, you know, Mets get to the World Series with strong starting pitching in 2015. Oh, we need to have three elite starts. It's not, that's not the game. You build your team based on what your resources are, and you build a team based on a myriad of factors. But maybe baseball, with the way it's gone to, we don't need these guys because of a quote-unquote money ball. Maybe they're starting to say, hey, maybe we need some of these guys. Well, there's got to be a balance, and that's the problem with, with as you say, there's such a lemming quality in, in baseball and imitation. My concern is that there's uh, – that that the weakness of a lot of teams uh and and I think a lot of those owners are just waiting to sell and make a killing and I mean what's happening with the A's right now is really disgraceful I mean it's I mean it's almost the the movie major league being acted out in, yep. in real time yep but but the good organizations you know like the Yankees like the Braves like the Dodgers they have a lot of money I know that but they invested well and uh, and and they bring. And are up, they are they supporting scoutingly? I mean, those yes, are yes, those are. are. Take they, the Braves out. The Yankees and the Dodgers are analytical teams, quote unquote. Right. They they have, they've not laid off that many scouts. In fact, one of, one of the things I learned after the book was set in print was the Astros, which were roundly denounced by in baseball for what they were doing, not just with the, with the, the cheating, but they, they've been laying off advanced scouts left and right. And, and eyes and ears 
amateur scouts, they've actually brought brought some back. But you see, the problem is the commissioner doesn't, uh, there's not a real leadership in uh, in, in the game. Um, and, and, but through history, there've always been the winners and then, then the losers. So, and there've been more losers than winners. So I, it, it is a, it is a difficult issue, but believe me, the teams that think they can do it by laying off the eyes and ears scouts are not going to win. And they haven't won because the game by its nature, it's weird. The game is, will eat you up and you have to be a very special person to get into the game and succeed. And, um, and, and I know some of the older scouts retired now, but they still work with kids because they like to, to teach fundamentals in the days before the big money, big money started in the in the seventy late seventies eighties and on, a player would get signed, and he would tell the scout, "Where do I go, and when do I start?" Now, the player says to the the scout, "What round and how much?" Yep, it's about money. And yeah, and 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 so that's the extreme, the the old extreme where the player was getting uh, underpaid wasn't right, but what's going on now? The pendulum switched the other way. Guys getting a lot of money, and it's not just in baseball. It's I mean, what Caroline was, Nikki is retired, and what uh, Naomi. Osaka is basically retired. You know, they become celebrities, make make millions of dollars, and they decide they'll they'll, they'll become an entertainer at age twenty four. I mean, you know, it's um, uh, that trend is. Uh, but to focus on baseball, I I still think when you have talent like Otani and Aaron Judge, and if he stays healthy, Trout, you know, you have you have some people. That, that you can root for and 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 adore and and they're good teammates too mm-hmm. um, but what you've got to do and this is where the, the talks with the scouts have clarified it you've got to train guys not only in fundamentals but one of the fundamentals is clearly you got to know how to be a good teammate because since yeah. the game is failure i mean human nature to me would be if you're there are three guys competing for one star starting position uh you might almost wish that one of your competitors get hurt that's not the way you develop into being a good teammate or a good player and so also about handing positions you know like i love when fans say well you know throw escobar he's not hitting throw him off the island give it to baby and then you're saying to yourself, that's not how this works. You know, guys respected in the clubhouse. Maybe he's done. Could you give him 30 games? Could you give him 45 games? Is another six weeks in AAA going to kill? Not going to kill the Mets' chances of winning, I don't believe. You know, same thing with Alvarez. Gets called up yesterday. Oh, why is he not in the starting lineup? Well, do you want him catching a Japanese pitcher who doesn't speak English from a catcher who doesn't speak English? It's a modern-day Tower of Babel. Like, you're setting the kid up for failure, but that's not what the analytics says. The analytics says Alvarez is a power hitter. Alvarez will hit. Alvarez makes sense in a lineup. And it's like, well, that's not how Buck Showalter manages. I think one thing I, and I'm curious your thoughts with Billy Epler, who's a disciple of G Michael, 
who I respect a ton. I've had a chance to meet Gene one time in Trenton. Uh, and he's a very big personality, God rest his soul. And Buck, who comes from the Billy Martin tree, is I don't think they're they're progressive. They believe in new age thoughts. And obviously with Cohen as the owner, they're going to have to implement some of it. But I don't get a sense they're an extremist team like the Astros or the Rays. Well, the thing with Buck, you know, because I'm, I'm an Oriole fan, used to live there and still root for them. I mean, he took that team that had lost pretty embarrassingly and in a year and a half he made it into a contender and he and did. when they were on pace to beat the 62 Mets that second half he took yeah. over immediately they became respectable they actually had a very good record yeah because he, attention to detail and uh he knows how to stroke the players you're the best in the world but he knows <laughs> how to keep them you know from keeping those fundamentals fresh and so he did wonders. I mean, he was uh, the, the when Jonathan Scope was actually a year older than Manny, uh, uh, and, and Machado, Machado, Machado broke in. He was a wonderful mentor for them because they both had in, uh, injuries, and uh, and and he made sure they took care of the rehab, and he uh, and he knew what they could do. So uh, I think if. Alvarez is eased in with Beatty. I think they're going to be a little bit I've seen of Beatty. I like his stroke and I like his determination. So, but as you say, you just don't send Escobar to the. Uh, it's a 162 game season. We act like every DH game. Too. You have to yeah. DH too. So. Yeah. It drives me crazy. Like we're at a point where we're acting like this is football and every game it's tra- They win. They tra- it's And it's again, it's, it's social media. We know that. Uh, a couple of things before we wrap up. Give me a name of a prospect that maybe you learned that nobody thought was going to be anything and turned out to be something. And maybe give me the uh, a name that we're not thinking of that had star written all over him and just never worked out. Well, you know, there's, there's so many. I know it's hard. Question. I know there are, there are so many. I, I know one of the scouts who uh, I've known through the scout or organization for years and years always said Joe Rigoli and the Cardinals said that the favorite fellow he signed was Joe McEwing, Joe, a 28th round draft pick. Uh, Wow. And and he's, I, he's been a third base coach forever, uh, had managerial uh, uh, aspirations, but it may have, that may have passed now, although I think he's still in the game somewhere. Uh, uh, The, um, uh, Billy Blitzer tells the story, the Cub Scout, who was the first scout I met, uh, tells a wonderful story about Devon White, who uh, was a infielder in high school. And, and when this, his, his supervisor, Billy's supervisor, came to see him play, uh, his throws to first base were very weak. And the supervisor said, you said he had a great arm. And so he calls him over and that when the half inning's over and he says, what's the matter with your arm? And he says, coach, the first baseman can't catch. <laughs> and, and, you know, but that was the story of Bobby Bonilla. Uh, Bobby Bonilla didn't have a position in high school and the coach didn't see his talent. And so Bonilla had to go into play in an international tournament to get uh, recognized, you know, uh, you know, among players that are 
today, uh, the, um, you know, I, I think the Yankees may have something as a utility guy in, in Oswaldo Cabrera. And and uh, and they're they're big. All teams now are big on on players that can play a lot a lot right. of positions. And it's okay to be a, a prospect and be a utility player. Like there's a thought where either you're a star, or you're nothing. Like it's okay to actually develop some utility guys like uh, uh, like that. You know, like Luis Guillorme type. You know, exactly, exactly. And I know I'm pretty sure Buck who who loves those that type. You know, because. You need grinders. You just don't win without grinders. I mean, when when the Mets won in '86, they had Dykstra and Backman. Dyke Dykstra, by the way, is another case of somebody. Uh, and and Larry Bower too. Uh, earlier, they was they were told to go home after tryout camps, but they had such determination that they were going to come back. And and Altuve is another one. He was told evidently to leave twice. Sure. And see what the Astros are yep. doing without Altuve. And, and I got to tell you, Lee, guy like Johnny Franco probably doesn't get drafted today because of his height. Uh, yeah. It's all about being six two to six three to six four, throwing hard. Uh, there's plenty of players throughout history. I know that our world and our nutrition and guys are bigger and stronger, so unfair to compare. But you know, Johnny Franco was a pretty good pitcher, and he probably wouldn't be drafted today. Well, there's the, well, you can say the same about Greg Maddox. You know, I have a great story in the book about the cat, the, the scout for the Cubs who was watching him develop. And, and, uh, you have to be a, a real Met uh, fanatic to remember Maddox when he was called up in the middle of, of, I think it was 85 and he got bombed at Chase Stadium. And they told him, listen, we're going to send you to Indianapolis, but go to Chicago first and settle down there because you'll be with us next year. But the next day, Cox goes to Indianapolis on a scouting mission, and he sees somebody throwing in the bullpen in street clothes. Now, that's a red flag. You can't be in street clothes. It's Maddox. He says, you know, I hope you don't mind, but I changed my ticket for Chicago for Indianapolis because there's something wrong with my curve and I have to get it fixed. <laughs> and Cox from then on said nothing that Maddox did on the field would surprise him because he had that kind of determination. Absolutely. So last thing. So you got some stuff coming up. Um, games changing. You know, we've got new rules. You, you're working on some projects. Obviously anybody who hasn't read your other books about Branch Rickey and the labor uh, of history of baseball and even the art of pitching with Tom Seaver's a hall of famer. God rest his soul. I mean, pitching hasn't pitching's changed, but it really shouldn't change that much. Well, that's you, know, it. you should learn about history in order to understand the game. I always tell the listeners learn about history, even if it's not Mets history or Yankees history or whatever your team you're looking for, because it can really help you understand and know where not only this game is going, so you could apply that to American history as well. And American Absolutely. politics, it's a big part. And that's why I, gave a chapter on Gary Nichols, who uh, uh, whose greatest signing as he looks back on his career of 50 years was was Joe Girardi for the Cubs because he was a junior and was eligible for the draft from Northwestern. But he he promised his mother he was going to get the finish the engineering degree at Northwestern. And, you know, Nichols just thought of that. This is this is a guy with makeup, you know, and a guy with loyalty and will will honor, you know, uh, what he did. And uh, 
So uh, makeup is 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 so important, and and the key too for baseball. You don't need. Yeah, I don't think you need the new bases myself, but it hasn't made a dramatic change. We shouldn't talk though about the changes. We should talk about how beautiful the game is when it is played uh, quickly and thoughtfully. You know, and and it's too early to judge what's happening with this uh, with this pitch clock. Certainly, a lot of pitchers are are more nervous than they used to be. But we'll see how we'll see how that how that works out. But my my key, and this is why I love the movies of the fifties, which is my next project. Um, uh, I recommend your uh, viewers to read to watch the original Angels of the Outfield from nineteen fifty one. I'm giving a talk about it because it cuts into so many parts of American culture. Because the it's Janet Lee plays the manners reporter who. Uh, uh, humanizes Paul Douglas as the the manager, and it's got slapstick in it. A, a, an orphan girl who sees the angels, and and a unseen angel, uh, uh, uncredited, but to James Whitmore, who played Harry Truman in a one man show twenty years later. So you know, we we have a great history in this country, and I and and baseball is woven into it, and and. And so that's what I'm all about. And that's why I've written the books. And it's, why it's great to talk with you, especially here in early April, when all of us can have hopes for, for good times. I got to tell you, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, you're a tre- treasure trove of information. We got to do this again. So let's keep in touch. Enjoy your weekend. Hope you had a good holiday weekend. And uh, the book is Baseball's Endangered Species Inside the Craft of Scouting of Those Who Lived It. Lee Lowenfish. Go to LeeLowenfish.com and I highly recommend uh, you know, Branch Rickey, grandfather, pioneer of the minor league system. Yes. You got a minor league system because of Branch Rickey. And and Lee uh outlines that. And look, if you don't think labor is gonna be a topic in the next three or four years in baseball, you're gonna have a labor. This thing's coming to a head. It might have, you know, been a little, little bit of a blip last spring. We're ready, you know, buckle up, Lee. I think we got some, well, some financial things. I'll say, going on. I'll say this the one good thing that Manfred just did, you know, they recognized the minor league player union, and the salaries that were pretty, very low have been improved. And, and even more important, it seems to me, because people, you know, baseball is so hard to succeed in that you want players who are wanted, who, you know, let's try to live our dream, you know, so, and, uh, but the important thing in this new, uh, the additionally important thing is that they're not going to cut out any more minor league teams because the the 42 teams and leagues that were cut out and uh, accelerated by the pandemic was just a blow to the heart, heartbeat of this game. Because again, you'd learn a lot of small towns that really, Are, and you know, and I think the WBC grows the game and helps grow the game. Uh, like, we can yeah, debate just, that for another hour, probably. That right, way. but it's only it's a, just really a few games, and it's yes. only every four years. You have to right. you have to build this from the ground as well as the top. Like, like you know, I'm glad because of the, the fact that baseball was race segregated for so long. I'm glad that a lot of the top draft picks now are African-American. I hope 
I hope they're good, though. I mean, and again, you need the scouts to uh, to identify them. So, but it, it, selling the game as a beautiful game and not just as a as a carnival, to use your word, sure. is yeah. my is what what I hope to see in the future. And at least talking about it maybe can move us in the right direction. Lee, you've been great. I hope you've enjoyed this. I really enjoy your book. I enjoy your work. I've I've been watching you afar for a while, and I'm glad we had a chance to catch up. So have a great weekend. Thanks for everything this morning, my friend. All right. My pleasure. Be well, Lee. Take Stay care. Stay positive, test negative. The magic there you go. Book, okay? Stay positive, test negative. And that's Lee Lowenfish, LeeLowenfish.com, author of the book, Baseball's Endangered Species, Inside the Craft of Scouting by Those Who Lived It. Uh, great historian of the game, highly recommend. We talk about this all the time on the Talking Mets podcast, how, you know, we just don't talk about the game now. We evoke history because we could learn from history to move forward. So anyway, let's take a quick break, wrap up your listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. Uh, really appreciate Lee Lewinfish coming on. And look, I'm a guy that loves analytics, and I've been critical of analytics going all the way back to my days running NYBaseballDigest.com. I felt that a lot of things that were being touted out there were essentially resumes for groups or websites or those who wrote for websites looking to get jobs in the business. You know, is there a value to it? Uh, you know, who, who's, who's to say, I mean, there's, uh, there's clearly a value to um, some of the information that has come out here. And I can't remember who said it, which owner, but there was a, um, Oh, an owner told Rob Manfred recently, analytics is an arms race to nowhere. And I don't think he named who the owner was. Uh, and I find that interesting because not that I agree with that 100%, but I think sometimes the amount of money and time you spend analyzing the game and dissecting it to derivative after derivative after derivative, at some point, baseball is not that complicated. And I can see, and maybe we've hit that, a threshold where – Ways to make the game better or ways to gain that extra 1% or that extra 2% is not going to happen on the spreadsheet or on Pitch FX or Rapsodo or any kind of technology uh, or, or, or high-velocity camera. But it's going to be getting back to simple principles where you take information, you give it to somebody, and you say, hey, why don't you go out there and go tell me what this kid's all about? Go watch a ball game. You'll learn a lot. I mean, look at a guy like Dennis Santana the other day. Here's a guy that, you know what, showed me a lot. You know what he showed me? Mets have a six-run lead. He's out there nibbling, not throwing strikes, then throws a meatball uh, for a three-run homer. 
And that tells me a lot more than if I looked at a box score or I looked at any kind of uh, vertical movement or velocity or anything like that. That tells me that's a guy that, you know, quite simply doesn't get, get game and situation type of thought process. And I'm not a scout. That's just simple there. So um, great stuff. I highly recommend Lee's work, whether it be picking up the Branch Ricky book, picking up the book about the reserve clause, great stuff. And we always talk about here on the Talking Mets podcast, it's important for all of us to understand history, to understand why things are happening now, and maybe learning about what will come because history usually repeats itself. We talk about that all the time. All right, before I wrap up, I want to go to the mailbag. Matt Hummel, uh, thanks for uh, reaching out, brought up an interesting concept, unnecessary depth. And Matt in his email to me, and I wanted to bring this up a little bit, you know, talked about, and this is prior to today's outing, about Carrasco struggling, saw Lugo pitching well in St. Louis, looks at how the Mets are spending big money on veterans like Pham, Navias, uh, Carrasco and guys like that, you know, they picked up the Carrasco option. And then you look, is it better to maybe, um, you know, uh, go and look at what the Padres did, maybe, you know, shooting for massive top and top. He talks about shooting for massive top and upside and take multiple gambles to fill out the depth. Or what you could say here, Matt, is knowing that you had Alvarez, knowing that you had Beatty, uh, knowing that you had Vientos, knowing that you had Mauricio, do you trust on your kids and plan for them to be big parts of this team? And really what you're saying here, to Matt, is that Fam, Nervaez, and to a certain degree, you know, if you believe in Jose Buto, Carrasco, because of the money they're making, because there's no flexibility on them, they're actually blocking some of the players. I mean, Nervaez could actually block Alvarez when he comes back in a couple of months. And I think it's a tricky situation, and I think the answer to that question, and I'll wrap up with this comment, it goes back to how important, and you want to, on a day we're talking about scouts, we'll talk about the you know scouts and player development portion of the Mets, not the analytics department. Those guys have such an important role on this team because Steve Cohen, as recently as this, this week, talked about his spending as a bridge to when that farm system can produce. And I'm not saying this farm system is going to produce another Pete Alonzo all the time or another Jeff McNeil or another Matt Harvey, another DeGrom and stuff like that. But I'll tell you what, it needs to start producing. We have been extremely fortunate as Mets fans from the pitching side because that's the issue so far as the season started. Do you realize since the day Matt Harvey took the mound a little over 10 years ago that the Mets have had guys like Harvey, DeGrom, Mats, Syndergaard. These are all guys that at some point either were aces, number twos, or had periods where they pitched elite. And you never really had to worry about building out your starting rotation. Maybe you had to worry about building your bullpen. You certainly had to worry about getting bats. But the, the, the white whale that a lot of teams struggle with, including even the Yankees, who go out there and get a, a bum-shoulder Frankie Montas to uh, round out their rotation during a pennant drive was starting pitching. And now Harvey's long gone. DeGrom is gone. Syndergaard's out in L.A. reinventing himself. Mats is doing Mats things in St. Louis. They're all gone. So what are you doing now? You're going to do what those Yankees teams used to do. They went out and they signed a Randy Johnson. They went out and signed a, uh, 
uh, a Kevin Brown. Uh, you know, hopefully a Max Scherzer already has been better than those guys. Can a Justin Verlander be better? You're rolling the dice on a Kodai Singa. Can he be Masahiro Tanaka? Can he be Hiroki Kurodu? Or can he be Hideki Rabu? We don't know. But the thing is this, if you develop, if you really draft well and develop well, and the Mets have, if even if you look at wins above replacement, the Mets have drafted pretty well. Have they developed well in all facets of the organization? The answer is no. I mean, the fact that we're here and, you know, you're struggling to fill out this rotation, that if Carrasco doesn't perform, you're scratching your head until Verlander coming back going, where are you going to get those innings? Uh, that's an indictment on the player development. This is a big year. You need to see movement on player development. Look, 2020 was a lost year in development for everybody because of COVID. You got back in into 2021, Cohen takes over. Invest in the infrastructure. Now you're in 2022, you're starting to move the needle in the right direction. But now you got to start taking that jump because every year that you stagnate developmentally is another year you got to go out and try to spend money to plug these gaps. And not every free agent class has a Max Scherzer or a Justin Verlander. You know, the Mets are really fortunate that there was Justin Verlander or else they'd be up you-knows-what's-creek without a paddle or they're replacing DeGrom with Bassett. And I love Bassett, but that's a downgrade. So, you know, Matt, maybe I didn't answer your question, your mailbag question, but that's kind of what I, what kind of thought process I evoked as I listened to what you uh, wrote. And here we are, Lugo, pitching well on a Sunday night baseball against the Braves. Let me go look it up real quick as we wrap up here. I'm coming to you here on Sunday night. Uh, you know, they're up 10-2. You know, San Diego's up 10-2. And, uh, you know, what did Seth Lugo do here? Uh, the new box scores are so busy on, uh, you know, six innings, five runs, four. You know, the walks are a little high for Lugo, five strikeouts. You know, six innings, one run, you know, you can't really complain too much about that. So, anyway, uh, that's it. Um, we're going to wrap up on that note. want to thank Lee Lowenfish for joining me. You can check me out all the time at the thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. You can also check me out on Instagram, TalkingMetsNoG. And I want to thank the good folks from the Fan Sided Podcasting Network for supporting the show. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody.
Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O.